I hope all of you had a lovely Thanksgiving. Um, it was a little different in my house this year. We had four children with temperatures 102 and up. <laughs> so not quite the festive mood that we're usually in around Thanksgiving time, but everyone's on the, men, on the men now, and we do have lots to be thankful for. Do you guys have a lot to be thankful for? Yeah. Amen. Right, right on. So it's good to be with you once again, and um, we are kind of doing two things today. One, in that we are landing the plane on the challenge portion of the hero's journey. We've been in a series called Hero's Journey. Hero's Journey is just a way of referring to every good story, right? With the sections of call, challenge, and completion. And today we're wrapping up the challenge portion, but we're also kind of kicking off, the, as you saw, the Advent season. And you may kind of notice both these things, and you might be thinking, you know, I don't know that I've ever associated Daniel as a Christmas character, right? Why aren't we talking about Joseph or Mary or something like that, right? At the same time, though, when you think about it, what is Advent about? The word Advent is about arrival, the coming of God's Messiah. And the Advent season is about awaiting with eager expectation. And was there a greater time in the the redemptive history in which waiting and Eager expectation were at its heights more than the exile in which Daniel lived. So I would argue it's entirely appropriate to kick off Advent season to talk about exile. And of course, this relates to us today because, as in the New Testament, Peter is writing a letter to Christians and he refers to them as exiles, right? He's pointing out the fact that this world in its current condition is not our true home. The New Testament also picks up the metaphor of Babylon, talking about Babylon as the world system in its idolatrous bent toward God. And so to a degree, we today are living in exile in Babylon. Of course, that's not to say that here in the West that our situation is as severe as it was for Daniel in Babylon, but The point remains the same. We are exiles in Babylon. And so an important question for us today, as it was in Daniel's day, is how do we live as faithful representatives in a culture that does not know God nor shares our values? How do we do that? And so our reading today will actually be in Daniel chapter 1. I know You may be anticipating he's talking about lions today, but actually we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. And, you know, up to this point, God's people in Israel had been, you know, they had appointed human kings over them, and these kings led them into idolatry and the worship of the gods of other nations. And it got so bad that even one of these kings adopted the Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. These were dark times indeed. And so God allowed his people to hit rock bottom in hopes that they would return to him. But starting in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put, into, put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, 
chief of the court officials to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and quick to serve in the king's palace. And qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. The writer Evan Coons invites us to imagine that we're in a high school gymnasium, but not to witness some athletic event. But on a stage in the gymnasium is a group of young people all wearing the same color cap and gowns. And from among them, one of them gives a speech. She is clearly the most academically gifted from among her peers, and she's proven time and time again over the past four years. And she gives a speech about how she and her classmates will go on to change the world. She wisely refrains from an over-dependence on referencing Merriam-Webster's dictionary. But she does include the wisdom of Dr. Seuss, thinking about the places you will go. And she caps the speech off by quoting the graduate card Bible verse. The graduate card Bible verse Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not for your harm, but plans for a future and a hope. And everyone is so proud of this girl. Her mother is clenching a fistful of tissues, rejoicing she's never going to have to pay for private education again. But then suddenly there's this low rumble and it's as if the building starts to slightly vibrate. And before anyone can ask out loud what's going on, a horde of men kick down the back doors. And these men are dressed all in black, helmets, laser pointers at the end of their rifles. They come rappelling down from the ceiling. And suddenly from some PA system that could be heard above the whirling of the helicopter propellers was a voice. It was foreign invaders. And they let it be known their intentions of taking this group of young people and the important people from among the adults. And that any resistance would be met with the offenders being tossed into fire or into a pit of lions. And so... These young people and others are tearfully and tragically dragged away, but everyone left remaining is weeping in dust and ashes. And the only question on their minds was, what about Jeremiah 29, 11? What kind of prosperity and future is this? But it's interesting that this is the precise context in which Jeremiah was writing to. Chapter 29 is a letter to the exiles, a letter to people who had experienced something like this. Imagine being Daniel 
You're likely something like a teenager. And one day you wake up in a different country with different customs, a different culture, different food, different politics, different gods. What would that be like? And so for us, the question today, as it was in Daniel's day, how does one remain faithful in a culture that does not know God and does not share our values? There have been a, uh, a different number of ways that God's people have engaged with the culture over the years. Uh, there's a pastor named Greg Thompson who's identified three of them, and we'll discuss these three and just kind of think about um, how they compared to how Daniel worked through things. And so if you could pull the iPad up, I'll start uh, to make a little list here. The first common reaction to culture from God's people, we can call fortification. Fortification, that is to hide from the culture or to withdraw from the culture. That is, that the culture is so unredeemably corrupt that we must separate ourselves from it lest we be contaminated by it. And so the unspoken sentiment here is that, well, I know Jesus, so I'm good, and my tribe, know Jesus, my tribe knows Jesus, so they're good, but, you know, to hell with the rest of the world. And this can look a number of different ways, and of course there's a spectrum with each of these, but perhaps one way that it looks is that within this evangelical bubble, that people are only willing to engage with books and movies and literature and authors and filmmakers and musicians that for one reason or another have the label Christian attached to them, but everything else is off limits. They only have Christian friends, and they only have conversations that are about what Christians are talking about and thinking about. But the question is, was this Daniel's paradigm? Was this model of engaging with culture Daniel's paradigm? We can read in chapter 1, starting in verse 17. To these four men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could learn, or Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So here we are. It's, it's at the end of their three years at Babylon University. Uh, but we see that Daniel did not withdraw from engaging with Babylonian culture. And you might think, well, how could he have? It's not like he could have moved to some bungalow on the edge of Babylon, right? And, and just, you know, kept everything at bay. But at the same time, there's a kind of mental withdrawal he could have participated in. Because after all, we know, we, we know what teenagers are like. I was a teenager once. They have this superpower of being able to tune everything out. In his time at Babylon University, Daniel could have been slouching at his desk in the back of the room, 
carving his Hebrew name into his desk, flicking paper footballs at his friends, right? He could have mentally checked out. He could have quiet quit, put forth the minimal effort. But is that what he did? No, it's, it's, from what we just read, it sounds like Daniel and his friends were experts in Babylon culture. And if you find that scandalous, it says that God enabled them to do it. So Daniel was culturally fluent. He was culturally literate. He was culturally relevant. So we could suppose that today, that Daniel would be the type of guy with his Bible in one hand and the Wall Street Journal in the other hand, knowing deeply what God says in his scriptures, but keeping an eye on the world. He would have been familiar with uh, our cultural myths, the, the stories that have shaped our culture. He would have known about the Godfather, Harry Potter, and um, I had another one in mind, but it's escaped me. <laughs> That's what happens when you make a list in your head, right? Yeah. He would have known, he would have had an awareness of Taylor Swift and why she matters in our culture and why her concert tickets will cost you a kidney and your firstborn child. <laughs> but he would understand why she resonates with people. Now, I'm not the Taylor Swift expert that Mike is, but I recently read an article about people who are in the know and they've kind of identified a bit of a story arc in her career in terms of her, the content in her music. And the first stage, more or less, is communicating this, I'm looking for someone to fulfill me. And the, the second stage of her career was this kind of disappointment and heartbreak of, I may never find meaning or love in my life. But then this, there's this kind of third stage in her career where she says, I have everything I need within myself. Sort of this gospel of self-discovery, what uh, sociologists call individual expressionism or expressive individualism, one of the two. Now, it's interesting how the art and the, and the, the stories that our culture tells often points to the deepest longings of every human heart, but they don't always offer sufficient answers. Perhaps rather than looking inward for our identity and purpose and meaning in life, perhaps we need to look up. Do we know a story that provides the answers for the deepest longings of the human heart? So it doesn't appear that fortification was an option for Daniel. Now, this is not to say, let's consume all the culture that we can without, dis without discernment or wisdom or a critical eye. But it's also not saying, let's just toss it all out as if there's no value in it. We need to be wise about this. And we need to seek and consume what is good, true, and beautiful. But the next posture, the next paradigm that people have often responded toward the culture, we can call domination. Domination. So like fortification, domination sees culture through oppositional lenses, through antagonistic lenses, except um, with domination, it doesn't express it through withdrawal, it expresses it through aggression. 
through forcefully imposing the values, its values, on the culture abroad through force and through aggression. And it is an unfortunate matter of history that many who have claimed the name of Christ have imposed their views and their values on the culture around them through force and sometimes through violence. Essentially disregarding all the commandments and character of Jesus himself. And inevitably, what you end up with is a culture where most people are willing to go through religious motions when grandma is watching, but you don't get heart-changed disciples. What domination produces is those obnoxious street preachers, or maybe you've seen them on the quads of college campuses, that just shout condemnation upon people, speaking only of the wrath of God and saying nothing of the grace of God. And the result is not... (laughs) People coming in droves saying, we are cut in our heart. Tell me what I must do to be saved. No, usually what it leads to is shouting matches where this audience who more or less is misinformed about Jesus become deeper entrenched in their suspicions. And there's often often a political uh, component to this as well where, um, and, and hear me, I'm not saying that Christians need to disengage from the public sphere or from any political engagement at all. We should vote and we should be politically or biblically informed as we vote. But there can get to a point where that becomes an ultimate thing for us, where our political views, where our vision for America becomes this not a good thing, but an ultimate thing for us, where we... (laughs) where our ideals about America and the kingdom of God, those lines become really blurred. As if America is this, you know, chosen nation that has a central role in redemptive history. And people can become very aggressive and and forceful with this. And, uh, well, that's not good. The issue with domination is that it doesn't see its neighbors with who it disagrees as fellow image bearers to be uh, loved and, and who need compassion and patience, but they see their neighbors primarily as enemies to be conquered. Well, was domination Daniel's uh, paradigm? Well, we can think about it. You, you might ask, well, how, how could Daniel have practiced you know, domination? He was an oppressed minority. Well, he could have said to his friends, look, it, it looks like we're pretty good at this Babylonian culture thing, or they're pretty easy to understand. And it seems that we have the favor of people who are set over us. We might be able to take this down from the inside. We might be able to get an inside track, and who knows? Maybe we we can even take down the big dog. But that wasn't what he did. And in fact, we read in Daniel chapter 4 to summarize it, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that has bad implications for himself. And so he tells this to Daniel, who God gave the ability to understand dreams. And Daniel does not hear this dream and, and goes, yes, finally, Nebuchadnezzar is getting what's coming to him. Yes. That's not what he does. He says, oh, Lord, that that this would be about somebody else and not you. And he exhorts Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sins, that this would not happen to him. That's grace. I mean, when you consider what Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Daniel, how he uprooted his whole life, and how in chapter 3 he tried to kill his friends, 
But for Daniel to extend this disgrace to Nebuchadnezzar, to say, I hope this doesn't happen, and I, I, would, I would prefer that you would avoid it. I want your good. That doesn't sound like domination, does it? And so I think perhaps a point of application for us today is if we think about our political opponents that we have, would you trade them for Nebuchadnezzar? Are they worse than Nebuchadnezzar? And let me ask this, do you quietly celebrate if something bad happens to them? If Donald Trump were to have a stroke, would you quietly celebrate? If Joe Biden were diagnosed with an aggressive form of dementia, would you silently cheer? That's something to think about. The next um, paradigm that Christians have often adopted with the culture, we can call accommodation. Accommodation starts out well enough where it seeks to partner with the culture for the good of the culture, but yet it goes too far in that it adopts the ideology and the methods and the ethics and the idols of the culture. We see this in Daniel 3 where uh, people uh, bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. They assimilate. They blend in. So if fortification is hide, domination is fight, accommodation is blend in. But what happens when you blend in is that you compromise your distinctive identity in order to become like everyone else. And so our culture today is Babylon. It bids that we bow to the king's statue. It tempts us with the king's food. It says to us, it says to us, put away thousands of years of Christian understanding and interpretation of your scriptures and adopt a revisionist interpretation to make it more palatable to our modern sensibilities. So adopt our way of thinking about life and what it means to be human and when life begins. Adopt our view of of male and female and gender. Adopt our view of marriage and sex and family. Adopt our view of success and the good life. Adopt our view of how to talk about the truth. Adopt our definitions. And many times, a question that we need to ask ourselves are, you know, because a lot of the times our culture isn't communicating to us as directly as I just did, but what are the hidden ways that we are influenced by our culture? What are the subtle, what are the subtle ways that it creeps in? Because a lot of the thing, because the truth is, a lot of the things in our culture anymore aren't argued for, they're asserted. Assertions are not arguments. What it seems that people in our culture believe today is that the more that you insert something, assert something, the less that you have to argue for it. So as C.S. Lewis says, the most dangerous ideas are not those that are argued for, but the ones that are assumed. So was accommodation Daniel's paradigm? Let's read beginning in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for the permission not to defile himself this way. 
Now God caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid that of my Lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than all the other men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and, and they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Here's the point. Daniel saying, look, I'm willing to cooperate up to a point. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to learn about your language and literature. I'll wear whatever clothes you want to put me in. I, you know, whatever name you want to call me, I won't waste my energies arguing with you about that. Because I can't control what comes out of your mouth, but I can control what goes into mine. You see, Daniel here was not wanting to defile himself. He was not willing to compromise because he knows that everything that Babylon was trying to do to him up to this point, even renaming him, was about his identity. They were doing everything they could to squeeze every ounce of Hebrew, a Hebrew identity out of him to make him full-on Babylonian. But Daniel says, no, here's where I draw the line. He would remain faithful to God. Now, whether this had something to do with Levitical law or the food's connection with being dedicated to idols, it's, it's up for debate. But Daniel knew that to go there would be to defile himself and to compromise his identity as one faithful to God. So fortification, domination, accommodation, hide, fight, or blend in. How then can we describe what Daniel's actual paradigm was? Well, many um, commentators point out that there's evidence that Daniel was well, well aware of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29, one uh, verse which we referenced earlier. But starting in verse 4, Jeremiah writes this in chapter 29. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So it's interesting. I mean, we could summarize this. God says to the people in exile, plant gardens and raise families. Something like what he told the first humans to do back in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Plant gardens and have families. This, are, this is the basis of civilization. Right? In other words, don't go into panic mode. But keep going with life as usual and do so as you seek the flourishing of the city. And so we can describe this as um, a type of loyalty. Daniel, in his cooperation, to a degree, was 
practicing a type of loyalty to to the culture he was in. Uh, a, A loyalty that meant seeking the shalom, the good of the city. However, there were limits to this. He was willing to cooperate, but he was not willing to compromise. So there becomes a point when the culture asks for your whole allegiance and uh, a greater loyalty than you have to that of God. And this is when an exile must practice resistance. Making your way through exile is walking a fine line between loyalty, that is seeking the good of the city, and resistance, keeping your ultimate faithfulness and allegiance to God. Cooperation, but not compromise. Perhaps another way that we can put it, uh, other simplified words that we can use, we find in John chapter 1. And we look forward to going through the Gospel of John in the new year. But John chapter 1, starting in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So Jesus, this passage tells us, is an eternal being. He's eternally with the Father. But And when he came to this world, which is what Advent is all about, Jesus is entering this type of alien world to him. It's like exile, really. And his paradigm, as he lived out, was grace and truth. And this paradigm we can call incarnation. Being in the world, but not of the world, and being full of grace and truth. And we can consider these paradigms in the life of Jesus as well. Because in the first century, there were those who practiced withdrawal and fortification. They were called the Essenes. The Essenes thought that both Roman and Jewish culture were so corrupt that they withdrew from it, living in caves. Um, But they did us the favor of writing the Dead Sea Scrolls, so that's good for us. But overall, not the, the best approach to culture. Did Jesus at all withdraw from the culture? I don't think so. I mean, Jesus talked to everybody. He talked to religious leaders. He talked to people who were irreligious. He talked to uh, the poor. He talked to people with diseases. He talked to tax collectors and prostitutes, Samaritans, Gentiles, Roman soldiers. Jesus talked to everybody. He didn't shield or hide himself from them. In fact, Jesus was often at dinner parties with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Jesus was so ingrained into the culture that people accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. So no, fortification was not an option for Jesus. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples, he does not tell them, I send you as sheep to the barn to be with other sheep. He says, I send you as sheep among wolves, implying that he intends for us to be engaged with our world and in the culture that we are in. What about domination? There were those in the first century who expressed domination through resistance. These are called the zealots. The zealots zealots were were fighting Roman occupation through force and through violence. But was domination a paradigm for Jesus? 
No. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. He came on a donkey. He tells Peter to put his sword away and that he could call legions of angels to come and rescue him if he wanted, but he didn't. And when a Roman centurion comes and asks him to heal his servant, I mean, we're talking about someone on the complete opposite end of the political spectrum than Jesus, but Jesus doesn't want to have a political conversation. He commends the man for his faith, and he heals his servant. So no, domination was not Jesus' paradigm. What about accommodation? So yes, Jesus went to dinner parties with tax collectors and prostitutes, but did he offer them the good news that the time has arrived? The kingdom of just be yourself is at hand? Go forth and live your truth? No, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe. Change your way of thinking. You need to change, and you need to walk in light of that change. He doesn't say, look, I know God's word was written a long time ago, so we're going to accommodate it to make it more palatable to you and to fit your needs and allow you to continue to live the way that you want to live. No. He offers both grace by his presence among them, but he also offers them the truth. When the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 is put before Jesus and they're accusing her, right? He, he says, well, you want to perfectly follow the law? Well, go right ahead. Is, have any of you perfectly followed the law? They all have to drop their rocks and run away. Jesus does not pick up a rock and say, well, I guess it's up to me then. He says, woman, who is left to condemn you? She says, no one. Well, then neither do I condemn you. He offers her the grace of not condemning her, but he also says to her, go and sin no more. He offers her the grace of not condemning her, not giving her what she deserves, but he offers her the truth that you can't live like this anymore. Jesus, full of grace and truth. That's how we walk in this world as exiles. Cooperation, but not compromise. Loyalty and resistance. Grace and truth. As I end, I think it's fair to point out that, you know, although we've talked about Daniel's faithfulness and how it's probably good for us to imitate Daniel, I actually don't believe that Daniel's faithfulness is the main theme of the story of Daniel. I would argue it's not about Daniel's faithfulness to God. It's more about God's faithfulness to his people. God's faithfulness to his people because anyone going through exile could have been thinking, has God left us? Has he abandoned us? Is he no longer faithful to his promises? But we see throughout the story of Daniel... In Daniel chapter 1, God giving him and his friends the favor of those over them and God helping them to look healthy. I mean, the point of this part of Daniel 1 is not the merits of a plant-based diet, right? It's about God's intervention and his faithfulness and having them look healthy. In Daniel chapter 2, God's faithfulness showed Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was in order to spare his life and the life of all the wise men. In Daniel chapter 3, God's faithfulness shows up in the life of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael as he spares them from Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. God's faithfulness shows up in Daniel chapter 6 as he spares Daniel from these hungry lions. Over and over again, God is faithful. But not only is God faithful, 
the message of Daniel is that God is on the throne and that he's still in charge. Because anyone on the outside looking into this would see Nebuchadnezzar taking the articles meant for worship of Yahweh and putting them into the temple of his God. Or years later when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, anyone outsider looking in would conclude to themselves, well, it looks like Yahweh is losing. And that somewhere in the heavenly realms, Marduk has his boot on the neck of Yahweh. But the thing we need to understand about Yahweh is that he often procures victory through defeat. His plans and purposes are accomplished through what appears to be loss. And so as we walk through our culture, as it gets darker and darker, we can rest assured it's not because God is losing and that his plans and purposes are still intact. And that the ultimate example of God's victory through defeat happened on a hill called the skull, as the word who became flesh was nailed to a cross, where God's justice and love collide, where his holiness and compassion have a collision, where truth and grace become husband and wife. And the cross exposes the truth. That though we want to think of ourselves as pretty good people with with a couple of flaws, the cross tells the truth that it's far worse than that. That this is what you deserve. That this is how bad, this is how corrupt you are. This is what your sins deserve. But it also offers us the grace that I'm dying for you anyway. That while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Truth and grace. And when we see the extent of God's faithfulness to us, we will respond in kind with faithfulness to him. Because if we don't have a grip of God's faithfulness to us, what hope can we have to be faithful to him? We see the degree that God went to show faithfulness to us. We can be faithful to him by living faithfully to him in exile without hiding, without fighting, without blending in but walking in truth and in grace. So I want to initiate a time of response here, but Mike's going to go ahead and come up and lead us in a Thanksgiving meal of the bread and the cup. But as I offer this invitation to this response, I want you to think about, maybe as I've talked about the, the paradigms of hide, fight, or blend in. Maybe you've recognized some of those in your life. Maybe that's how you've engaged with people. And you want to come and ask for God's wisdom and boldness of showing you how to live in truth and in grace. Then you come. Because the one thing we're told about wisdom is that God wants to give it to you. We don't have to beg him for it. So you can come with confidence asking for God's wisdom and boldness to walk in grace and truth. But I also want to say this. Maybe you're here today and you have witnessed others in your life who have adopted the paradigms of hide, fight, or blend in. And it's given you a bit of baggage. They have, these people have misrepresented Jesus to you and you, you may be walking with... Um, misinformed ideas of Jesus and today you want to begin you want to begin a journey with Jesus where he shows who he actually is to you 
then you come as well as the band plays.